Welcome to Let's Talk About Life, a podcast brought to you by LifeBank, the organ, eye, and tissue recovery agency in Northeast Ohio. Donation can be a complicated subject, but it is really all about life. So spend a few minutes as we unravel the complexities of donation. So come on, let's talk about life. I don't know about you, but when I hear that music being played, I automatically want to get ready to sit down and watch the Olympics and hours and hours of amazing sports and athletes. There's the precision of curling, the excitement of hockey, the beauty of figure skating, and the thrill of skiing and gravity-defying snowboarding. These athletes train for years to be in the best physical condition at that very moment when they are about to perform on the global stage at the Olympics. So when Chris Klug was told he would need a liver transplant just to live, participating in the Olympics seemed like an unobtainable dream. Hi, you're listening to episode 93 of Let's Talk About Life. I'm your host, Colleen Gerber, kidney recipient and LifeBank staff member. Snowboarding was a new sport to the Olympic Games in 1998, and our guest is considered one of the pioneers. Chris is an 11-time Nationals champion, a five-time World Cup champion, a three-time Olympian participating in the men's parallel giant slalom in snowboarding in 1998. 2002, and 2010. But probably his most amazing accomplishment is that Chris won a bronze medal just 18 months after receiving a life-saving liver transplant, allowing him to obtain his Olympic dream. Chris, wow. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your incredible journey with us. Uh, You were here in Cleveland back in 2010, and it's so wonderful to have a chance to talk with you again. You bet, Colleen. Thanks for having me on. Nice to catch up with you. So, Chris, let's begin at the beginning. How old were you when you first got into snowboarding? And really, how were you introduced into it? It was such a new sport. Colleen, I was uh, an avid skateboarder as a kid, and that was really my entree into snowboarding. I was uh, born in Colorado. I'm a a native Coloradan, but grew up in central Oregon. And uh, in the summertime, I would build ramps with my dad. We had a huge half pipe in the backyard. And uh, I would just run around the construction sites and find uh, discarded lumber and build ramps and explore uh, abandoned aqueducts and, and you name it. I just loved a skateboard. When I saw the first snowboard, I really looked at it as skateboarding on snow. And I came home after seeing the very first snowboard. I was about nine years old. And I said, I've got to try this mom. And I rented a Burton backhill from the local Century Cycles bike shop, went out to the local sledding hill and I was hooked. That's all I wanted to do. And every day off, every weekend, every holiday, I was out snowboarding. And I think that's what really led to my success was I just loved doing it. And it was such a fun culture in the early years, just 
a bunch of riders that knew that they were onto something special. I was joking if I could have bought stock in snowboarding when I was uh, nine or 10 years old, I would have. I just knew this was going to be a sport that was addictive and that would resonate with so many people. And when you're out there on the mountain, you'd see somebody else and you just gravitate towards one another and check out each other's bindings and, and how they set up the snowboard and you'd end up riding together no matter where they were from because there was only a handful of snowboarders on the mountain. And I just love that energy of uh, the sport when it was brand new and I got the privilege of, of doing what I love to do for 20 years on the World Circuit and three Winter Olympic Games. But those early years of the sport, the uh, days of moon boots and duct tape and uh, <laughs> and a leash that went from the nose of the board to my front hand. I look back on those very fondly. When did it change from something you loved to do to something that you began competing against other snowboarders? Well, I, I tried my hand fairly early on. There was a few snowboard competitions that popped up and it was typically the NASTAR race course. You'd pop your quarters in the Marlboro Ski Challenge and you'd go through the, the race course. Then they would have a, a moguls competition and oftentimes a halfpipe where the competitors would dig the halfpipe beforehand and then judge one another. So it was a pretty, pretty early years of snowboard competition. But I tried my hand and uh, met with some early success, but most importantly, I had fun. And it's interesting you ask that, when did it go from fun to a career? I would always sit down every springtime. We would be on snow, you know, 125, 150 days a year training and competing in South America, all over Europe, Asia, and of course, North America. And every spring I would sit down and reassess, especially the last few years of my 20 plus year career. And I would say, okay, there's five questions I have to ask myself. And if any of these are a no, I'm done. Is it still fun? Was one of them. Is it financially feasible? Am I still competitive? Am I doing any long-term damage to my health? And uh, can I pay the bills at the end of the day? So was it still fun was always one of those questions. And like I said earlier, you know, I love doing it. And the cliche that if you enjoy what you're doing, you don't work a day in your life has really been true for just about every endeavor that I've, that I've been a part of in my life. How fortunate. How fortunate. You're out there and you're competing and obviously you're getting better and better and better. When did you start feeling ill and how did that diagnosis play out for you? I never really felt ill until kind of the final months of being on a transplant waiting list for about six years in total almost. I was uh, initially totally asymptomatic. I had no signs that my liver had problems and would ultimately fail. I've just discovered through a routine physical that I had some high liver enzymes. And my mantra is always more is uh, always better. But uh, in this case, higher liver enzyme numbers are, are not so good. <laughs> and I was a clueless, knuckle-dragging snowboarder. I, I didn't know what, even know what a liver enzyme was. And so it took us uh, about a year and a half to find out after getting poked and prodded and ERCP procedures and liver biopsies and stuff that I met with University Hospital hepatology and, and liver disease specialists and the transplant team down in Denver. 
and they informed me I had a disease called BSC that uh, most likely had an autoimmune con- uh, connection and that would one day require a liver transplant. Wow. And I'll never forget that day, looking around in the room going, who are they talking to? They can't be talking to me. I feel like they're in box. I'm riding my snowboard. I'm getting ready for snowboarding first Olympics in 1998. And I remember thinking, you guys got the wrong guy. You're crazy. There's no way I need a liver transplant. And uh, obviously I was in total denial and I was still relatively asymptomatic. So it's hard to accept that news. Well, and you're also young. You're 21 and you just, you, you, you think you're invincible too. We are. You're, you're immortal at 21. And uh, someone telling you otherwise is shocking news that's not welcomed. And I think that's one of the challenges that we face with organ donation to some degree and spreading that message, encouraging people to know the facts and, and document their donor decision. But it forces us to have a conversation about our mortality. And when you're in your teens or 20s, or I'm 49 now, and I, I still reluctant to admit that we're, we're aging and perhaps slowing down. I don't think so, but uh, <laughs> uh, not sure I can uh, take the same crash as I did when I was 20. But in any case, organ donation forces us to have that conversation. You know, what, what do you want to happen if you're no longer here? And when you're 20-something, you're always here, and uh, that's never going to happen. So... That's where I was when I was diagnosed with liver transplant. That's oh. something I was uh, ready to accept. Obviously, yeah, yeah. And you made the Olympic team in 98, and you competed. I did. That was snowboarding's uh, first ever Olympics in Nagano, Japan, and it was uh, incredible. You know, I, I remember walking into the opening ceremonies with my longtime snowboard coach, and I said to him, Rob, can you believe how far our sport has come? I was, uh, I don't want to say one of the pioneers, but I got involved in the sport really early on. Yeah. And it wasn't uh, that long before that I was, as I said, riding a glorified shaped piece of plywood and moon boots for duct tape. And uh, here we were walking into Nagano, Japan for the 98 Olympics and the opening ceremonies. I, uh, I got off to a great start in 98. I was in a silver medal position and was uh, really having a great year that year and, and thought I could compete for a medal. And uh, unfortunately, things didn't go quite as I'd hoped on the second round, and I ended up in sixth place. And I was fairly devastated by that because I recognized that if you're healthy and and strong and and fit and you don't have any major medical challenges, uh, perhaps on the horizon, it's really hard to do a second Olympics. And I knew in the back of my mind that I was actually on a waiting list in 1998 that, you know, my liver could fail and, and I could never compete at the Olympics again. But uh, in 98, when I finished that race and ended up sixth place, a little short of my goal of bringing home a shiny necklace, I said, I'm coming back in four years. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm coming back. I'm going to get the job done. I knew that, uh, of course, that was in Salt Lake City, just about five or six hours from my home in Aspen, Colorado. And I was determined to get there no matter what. And you sure did. You had an incredible 2002. There were so many poignant moments for you in those Olympics. But we have to back up a little because (laughs) something else happened just 18 months prior to the games at Salt Lake City. You got the call. I did. July 28th, 2000, just uh, over 21 years ago, approaching uh, 22 years this summer. And I got the call from my transplant coordinator, Tracy. She said, get your butt down to Denver and let's, uh, let's get ready for this transplant. 
But uh, Colleen, as you know, the the precarious thing about a transplant is it's not like an orthopedic injury or, or so many injuries that I had throughout my career. You don't just get an x-ray or an MRI and diagnose it and uh, do surgery if necessary or be in PT. There's this waiting game, and, and that's such a challenging and, and precarious place to be where your life is sort of put on hold. And uh, you're hoping and praying for a second chance, but you're also struggling with the concept of, uh, you know, what at what cost that second chance comes. You know, I was in my uh, late 20s now, 27 years old in the summer of 2000. And, you know, I was aware of the statistics of, of how many people were waiting and how many people didn't get a second chance every day and passed. And uh, it was really a, a scary place to be in your life. You're just hoping and praying for a second chance. And uh, as you said, I did get that second chance. And that's also, I don't want to say a mixed blessing because it's absolutely a blessing. I was really grateful. I knew that was my only chance for long-term survival, but you're also facing this, you know, sort of scary surgery. And so you're, you're grateful the wait is over, but now you're a little anxious for the surgery. So yeah, a lot of emotions and, uh, you know, a lot going on when you're on the waiting list for almost six years and, waiting for that gift of life. I, I remember getting that call and then we headed down to Denver and I prepared for the transplant. And I remember looking at the docks and I was signing my life away and all the machines are abuzz and people are coming in and out of the room. And I was like, let's do this doc. I'm ready. <laughs> like I was ready to pull out of the start gate. And then they postponed the surgery until the next morning. And I, uh, I loved that confidence. I remember looking up at my wife and my family. Am I going to wake up from this? Yeah. And uh, I did. Six hours later, I woke up, both arms in the air, yelling, I rule! <laughs> and uh, I think the painkillers might have been talking a little bit, but that's how I felt. It felt like a brand new engine got dropped in me, and I was ready to uh, go test drive that engine. My doc recognized that, and he said, whoa, 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 you've got to take it easy for two months. I don't want you uh, having rejection or infection, or there was a risk of an incisional hernia. He says, you've got to take it easy for two months. I made it uh, seven weeks. I was back on my snowboard again. Grateful to uh, be doing what I love again. And then how did the Olympic trials go from there? Well, I was uh, I was back on my snowboard seven weeks later and, and training hard to catch up. But, you know, it, uh, it really put things in perspective, and it sounds cliche, but you go through a life-saving transplant when one day you're on a store step and the next day you get a new lease on life. It uh, really puts things into perspective, lets you know what's important in life, your friends, your family, your faith, your quality of life. And I'm just so grateful that racing a snowboard felt fairly easy. And uh, I, I made it a little more dramatic than we would have liked. I saved it right till the last event in, uh, in Italy for the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City on the final qualifier. And you did it. Uh, I mean, how exciting it was. It was, I know I felt so proud. For many years, you were the only transplant recipient to compete in the game, but then also the only transplant recipient to win a medal. Obviously, that makes you an inspiration for other transplant recipients, and especially for those on the waiting list. That's really a bit of a responsibility. How do you feel about that? From my perspective, you know, it was. It was an amazing opportunity, and selfishly, uh, I love snowboarding, and that's been my passion my whole life. And I, and I was going to go out there and 
I trained really hard to, to bounce back and put myself in a position to be in my second Olympic Games. So I sort of felt like, hey, I worked so hard the last few years to get here and been through a lot. I can do this. Yeah. But after I won my medal, I, I recognized that I had a great podium to speak from and, and show the world what's possible after a transplant. And so I was really proud of that because I just had so much help and support from the transplant community. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for uh, my donor family, first of all, and my docs and physical therapists, my family, my support network, so many people that played a role in, in my recovery and uh, being here today. And so it was really neat to share that with so many of them and then share the message with the world that transplantation works and anything's possible after a transplant. And speaking of your donor and your donor family, do you know anything about them? I do. Yeah, he was a, a young 13-year-old boy that got in a gunshot accident. And uh, I got to meet his family uh, the day after winning my bronze medal in Salt Lake City. Oh, my goodness. How emotional was that? I put my bronze medal around their neck, and we celebrated together. And I shared with them that I'm here today because of you and your uh, and your son, Billy. And uh grateful and forever humbled for that second chance. Oh, absolutely powerful. And I can see why you're dedicated. It just envelops the best of humanity, I think. I couldn't agree more, Colleen. Any chance I get today to share my story, I jump at it. Because I remember when I was facing my transplant, I thought it was a death sentence. And then I thought, okay, maybe it's not a death sentence, but your quality of life is going to be lousy. And you certainly can't compete at an Olympic level. And I'll tell you, there's nothing I can't do today. I'm way healthier. I'm way stronger after my transplant than I was before. I race the Leadville 100 every single summer and uh, do some other big ski mountaineering and mountain bike races and mountaineer a lot and race my bike and, and all the things that I'm, I'm still really passionate about. And I do that because selfishly I enjoy it, but it's also a great way as I said, to show people that anything possible after a transplant. And I just think about when I was on that transplant waiting list almost 30 years ago, you know, I thought, God, I'm going to die on this transplant waiting list. And now 22 years later, looking back on it, somebody that's going through the same thing that I did, I can share with them that, Hey, I'm way healthier, way stronger than I ever was before. Doesn't mean there won't be some challenges along the road, but uh, there's nothing I can't do. But you and I both know, since we work in this industry, the sad fact is that people do pass away on the waiting list. Yes. And yep. I, th I would assume that that was part of the reason that you created Donor Dudes and your Chris Klug Foundation to help those on the waiting list. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about those programs? Yeah, really, our, our mission with Chris Group Foundation is, is very similar to LifeBank's work, advocating for life-saving organ and tissue donation, uh, and also helping inspire those that are touched by transplantation. As I said, anyone that's going through the same thing that you and I did, to uh, let them know that, hey, you've got this great support network behind you, and uh, we're here to help, and we're, we're focused on getting the word out so that anyone that needs a transplant can get one. We know that's not the case right now, but uh, our goal is to eliminate the wait and, and make sure, as I said, that anyone waiting today can get a transplant. We've got our work cut out for us and determined to get to 100% donation rates and 
doing everything in our power, really through our youth initiatives like uh, Donor Dudes, through our ambassador panel tour, our toolkit for teachers. We just had a great event last week at Winter X Games where we talked to thousands of young people and handed out live life, give life, swag and sunglasses and buffs and all sorts of fun uh, giveaways to really promote uh, life-saving donation and encouraging everyone there have a conversation. Yeah, so important. Colorado, have a, they have a state registry, right? We do. Number one uh, state in the country in terms of donor designation and, and registration. So I'd like to think we played a small part in that and, and really proud of that. But it's not 100%, so we're not giving up. No, I think in Ohio we're 62%. And uh, we just fantastic. have to keep pushing, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And we've got uh, National Donor Day coming up on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day isn't just about uh, chocolates and flowers, although my wife and my daughter are convinced that it is. Um, <laughs> dark, dark chocolate for me. But uh, we'll be doing uh, a, a big campaign nationwide, really, and teaming up with other OPOs uh, like Life Bank across the country. And with campuses, with high school and college campuses and uh, fraternities and sororities and, and clubs, driver's ed programs and, and health programs and, and schools all over the country uh, hosting Donor Dudes events, both on National Donor Day and also in April for Donate Life Month, promoting organ donation awareness and handing out some fun swag and, and making sure uh, everybody that can be a, an organ donor registers and, and makes that decision and hopefully checks the box. Yes. You're doing great things, Chris. As you well know, Colleen, it's uh, when you've been through this, it's really a miracle in many ways that these heroes of organ donation, the organ donors that make this all possible as a, as a recipient, it's an incredible gift and you're motivated to give back and make sure uh, other people can also get that, that second chance. What is your reflection of the 22 years since your transplant? You, you were really a kid when you started this journey. And, and mm-hmm. looking back, what are some of the lessons that you're, you've taken away? I think gratitude is, uh, is a big one. You know, the, the ripple effect of organ donation. I've got an eight and a 10-year-old now, and getting to be their father and uh, be a part of their lives is the ripple effect of donation. It's not just me, it's my kids, and that legacy of my donor lives on. I'd say gratitude's a huge one and, and also really a burning desire to change the landscape of organ donation in this country and uh, make sure that, like I said before, I know I sound like a broken record, but make sure that everybody that needs a transplant can get one. And so we're continuing to push. And, and I think our best and highest use right now as Chris Cook Foundation is really encouraging young people through this vehicle of action sports and so many of the activities that I love, uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, kiteboarding, wakeboarding, you name it, all the, all the boards where you stand, stand sideways. <laughs> That's a great entree for us to say, we love these activities and, and they're so much fun. There's something else that's really cool too, that God forbid something happens to you, recycle yourself and, uh, and the impact and the legacy that you can have. One organ donor saving up to eight lives, improving as many as 50 lives. What better legacy can we leave? There is none. There is none, really. Just one last question. We're right in the middle of the 2022 Winter Olympics. 
in Beijing. And I'm interested in your thoughts about these games and Team USA. You know, all three of my Olympic journeys were totally different and all special in their own way. And I got to finish my career in, in 2010 in Vancouver at 37 years old, the only snowboarder with gray hair. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I just loved it and felt so privileged to be a part of that and compete on one of the biggest stages in the world. The Olympics are really unique. I do think that they can affect positive change. I'm struggling a little bit with the Olympics that I love so much and, and have given me so much and opened so many doors for me taking place in an authoritarian country right now. Yeah. But you know what? I, I do think that good can come from that. And of course, we all just celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day and with hate doesn't uh, solve anything. It's maybe we can open some doors. Maybe we can find common ground through sport. Maybe we can uh, bridge some of these differences. And so I'm optimistic. I'm really excited to cheer on the athletes. I shared with you earlier that uh, my grandmother instilled a a love for the Olympics. And I was an Olympic fan long before I was ever an Olympian. So I'm really excited to uh, cheer on the skiers, the boarders. It doesn't matter what the sport is. I love watching it. I know. I think Team USA is going to do great. And you know what? It's uh, after everything this whole world has uh, been through with COVID and a challenging uh, 18 months or so. Hopefully the Olympics is a great respite from that. And we're headed in the right direction. And we can have two awesome weeks in February together. Yeah, I I agree uh, wholeheartedly. Chris, I am so pleased to have talked with you and thank you for being so generous with your time. You know, my mantra is enjoy the ride. Don't take a single turn for granted. And uh, I think, especially as a transplant recipient, every day is a gift. And uh, I try to always be mindful of that. That doesn't mean I, I don't make mistakes and don't screw up uh, some days and opportunities, but it's a great reminder to live in the present. And you and I have been given an amazing gift and uh, I hope I can play a small role in, in passing that on and helping other people get that same second chance. And I'm just so grateful to be here and proud to, uh, to team up with you and LifeBank and, and share this message that we're all so passionate about. Chris, you are a wonderful guest and a better human being. And I really appreciate you spending time to talk with me today. We hope you found today's episode informative and inspirational. You know, you can save lives simply by going to lifebanc.org and registering your donation decision. You can catch Let's Talk About Life on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, but you can always find it at lifebank.org. We thank you for listening and we hope you come back next time. And come on, let's talk about life. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk About Life. If you have questions about today's podcast, reach out to us at info at Take a few minutes to do something heroic and register to be an organ donor by saying yes at lifebank.org. Literally, someone's life is dependent on it.